0: Hi, Christian Huey here, host of All You Ever Think About is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast to examine the entire musical canon of the band Sparks in chronological order and with occasionally obsessive detail. This podcast episode has two parts. In part one, I'll be giving you sort of the Cliff Notes version of the history and biography of Sparks' earliest years, leading up to 1969. Then, in part two, my co-host Richard Martinez and I are going to play every track off the unreleased first Sparks album, who were then known as Half Nelson, and dissect them in the way that only a couple of non-industry people who probably can't even really plain instrument, uh, can do. Uh, there's also an excellent interview that we recorded with Rude Swart, a friend of the podcast, and that will be released separately. So, dance, goddammit. This is episode one of All You Ever Think About Is Sparks <laughs> This podcast is about Sparks, the band. Uh, Now, if you're listening to this, you've probably heard of them. I'm not going to recite the same boilerplate intro to Sparks that inevitably takes up at least half of the review of every new album they've released for at least the last 25 years or so. Sparks are a band, they're a pair of brothers, they're from LA, and this is their story. That story begins on August 12, 1945, when Miriam and Meyer Mayle celebrated the birth of their first child, Ronald. It happened to be the same day the United States announced it would accept a Japan's surrender, ending World War II. A few years later, on October 5, 1948, a brother named Russell was born. It was an auspicious time to be born in America, and the males enjoyed the fruits of a seemingly boundless American economy, where the future was guaranteed to be bright. Now, there's no doubt that Ron and Russell had a fairly privileged upbringing. Their parents weren't what we would call one-percenters in today's parlance, but Miriam and Meyer male were able to provide a comfortable home life for their sons, The boys grew up in post-war California, and their family definitely did benefit from the two-cars-in-every-garage middle-class existence that seems like the stuff of legends today. Now, their parents were unusually open-minded and artistically inclined. I suppose you might even call them intellectuals. Meyer was a graphic designer and a painter for the Hollywood Citizen, a local liberal rag during a time when McCarthyism was taking hold in America and when Los Angeles was not the ultra-liberal bastion it is today in the early 21st century. Now, Meyer really cared about providing a cultural education for the boys, and that included the pop music of the time, the new rock and roll youth culture. It was pretty unusual for a suburban dad to be bringing home Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, stuff like that, uh, home to play for your kids. It was still considered pretty subversive stuff. Miriam, the boy's mother, was a teacher and a librarian, and was a big fan of the boy's artistic endeavors right from the get-go. Now, depending on which early interviews with Ron and Russell were legit, and which were some of many countless attempts uh, by them to troll the media, Uh, Miriam may have been the typical Hollywood mom, those were Russell's words, who pushed them into child acting or modeling for, say, the Sears catalog. Where Miriam's influence really starts to show as it relates to Ron and Russell's later famous or infamous, if you like, sense of humor, Uh, We start to see after Meyer sadly passes away in 1957 at the young age of 40. Now here's a quote from Ron in an interview with Mojo Magazine. It was a heart condition. I was 11 when he died. It was very sudden and unexpected. There was no buildup. He was so young and it just wasn't like what happened in movies or books. I learned a really big lesson that things can happen totally out of the blue and there isn't a rational order to things. It's not hard to see the sour... Not quite acceptance of life's dark absurdities and literally hundreds of Sparks songs that Ron would go on to write. And there's no question that the death of their father, Meyer, would forever change the way that Ron and Russell approached and viewed the world. And at the same time, drew the brothers uh, closer together. Four years after the passing of Meyer in 1961, Miriam was remarried to a colorful guy named Oscar Rogie Rogenson, who owned a novelty shop in Pacific Palisades called the Gilded Prune. His stock of knickknacks and doodads and bric-a-brac soon spilled over into the male-slash-Roggenson house. Rubber lips and joke books and chattering teeth and beetles bobbleheads, what other people might call Trash culture detritus shaped Ron and Russell's sense of humor in a big way. By the time the boys were in college in the late 60s, the gilded prune also trafficked in soft drug paraphernalia, the kind you might see even in your local gas station these days. Things like bongs, weed grinders, pipes, R-crumb posters. And I In my opinion, you can't listen to a Sparks album and not imagine a sort of more highbrow Spencer's gift shop once you've got that image in your head. And there's the male brother's childhood summed up. A psychedelic joke shop stocked with high art, kitsch, familial love, rock and roll rebellion, death, and bongs. Ron Mayle enrolled in UCLA in 1966 and studied graphic design like his father, Meyer, did. And Russell followed a couple of years after that as a film student. Maybe because that's how Jim Morrison started out. Who knows? Now, from the outset, the boys were much more motivated by their interest in creating music than their enrolled studies. Uh, Miriam had paid for lessons for years for the brothers. Violin for Russell, piano for Ron. They were, in fact, musicians by the time they got to college, which made forming a band of their own easy. At UCLA, Ron befriended a fellow student named Fred Frank, who played guitar, and his soon-to-be wife, Ronna Frank, a drummer. With Russell playing bass and singing, and Ron on piano, organ, or whatever keyed instrument they had access to, Urban Renewal Project was formed in 1967. They lasted for a few months. It was enough time to record a four-song EP on Acetate at the Fidelity Recording Studio in Hollywood and completely bomb a handful of Battle of the Bands competitions. Uh, They were so green, Russell later said that it wasn't until one competition when a rival band yanked out all of their chords that they realized they were all playing in different keys. Although Ron and Russell preferred British psychedelia of the time, um, or the everything including the kitchen sink weirdness of Frank Zappa and uh, Captain, uh, Captain Beefheart, Urban Renewal Project sounded pretty similar to dozens of faceless bands that they competed against. Now, it is not easy to find copies of the Urban Renewal project demos. I myself have requested the MP3 files from a few sources, but Sparks evidently doesn't care to have the recording circulated, except, of course, for one song, Computer Girl, which I'm told by various sources is not at all representational of the other tracks, and that's not too hard to imagine. Uh, Computer Girl, when you listen to it, isn't really a song, in fact, but it, more of a drone. Uh It's Ron playing a four-note arpeggio against Russell's two-note bass slide and Ronna Frank intoning, this is a recording, ad infinitum. Here's a clip from Computer Girl and Russell's explanation of it in a BBC radio interview from decades later.
1: weren't completely knocked out. It was, it was kind of a shock to us.
0: This curious blend of one-fingered keyboards and gothic vocals is Computer Girl, one of Ron and Russell's earliest recordings. Even at this stage, their twisted, distinctive style was already evident.
1: Computer Girl My
2: Computer Girl was actually way 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 pre sparks first album that was something that was pretty crudely recorded we went into some studio in hollywood and you know you pay your money for your one hour to go in and record and then that's what came out of that but that was the first actual recording that we ever did the interesting thing too is we couldn't figure out that we we were singing way back then about computers and there weren't computers per se so we can't figure out how we got the metaphor of a a computer girl into a lyric. There you go. Ahead of the game again.
0: Urban Renewal Project fell apart quickly thereafter, in no small part because Frank had been drafted into the Vietnam War. Ron, who was in grad school at the time, was afraid that his number would soon come up. Luckily for him, and possibly for the future of Sparks, both Ron and Russell escaped the draft unscathed. Now, undeterred, Ron and Russell put out an ad for a new guitarist and a guy by the name of Earl Menke answered. Uh, Of course, this is depending on who you ask. It may have been Menke's ad that the males responded to. With the Menke's formidable technical skills not only on the guitar, but also in the studio, a new band called Half Nelson, after the one armed wrestling hole, still haven't found out why. Uh, Ron and Russell completely changed up their musical approach um, and their performance approach. After flunking out of numerous battles of the bands, uh, Half Nelson immersed themselves in the studio, armed with friend and photographer Larry DuPont's portable tape recorder and a spinal tap like short lived succession of drummers. Now, Ron and Russell's current thinking about making a successful band was that it was a waste of time and energy to play an endless succession of live shows to audiences who were mostly indifferent um, people and record companies, especially, wanted records. So they sought out to make their own, which was very unusual at the time, and mailed them out to whomever would listen. Now, it was here in the studio, actually the male's living room at first, that the band found their groove, so to speak. Uh, Earl Mankey wasn't the Anglophile that Ron and Russell were, but he did like uh, the freak-out sounds of Zappa and Beefheart, and he was very talented in using the same kinds of studio trickery um, that those acts uh, employed often. Uh, The band, Half Nelson, and Ron and Russell in particular were also massive fans of Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd, That band had recently released their debut, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and it is an album uh, whose aesthetic casts a long acid-drenched shadow all over the sound of the resulting 1969 uh, half-Nelson record, unreleased record. Uh, A casual listener, however, can also uh, pick up Echoes of the Kinks, uh, The Doors, Strawberry Alarm Clock, uh, again, uh, Captain Beefheart, Zappa and the Mothers, uh, and other uh, similarly outré uh, musical acts of the time. Uh, and the band also indulges in some very un-rock-and-roll forms, like sea shanties, uh, carnival music. Now, largely thanks to Earl Minky's prodigious skills in the studio, the songs in the unreleased 1969 Half Nelson record show a seemingly limitless appetite for experimenting with new sounds. Listening to the record, you can hear nearly every sound, every note being squished, stretched, reversed, quadrupled, tracked and extruded into outer space, largely at Mankey's hands. Now, bottom line, Half Nelson was not Chicago. They weren't even Credence. They were not of a piece with the latest mainstream rock of 1969. They didn't sound like anything that was familiar to... Um, listener, listeners of uh, of rock and roll in on the West Coast at that time, uh, they also were not hippies, although they did vociferously oppose the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, Ron and Russell, at least, uh, never smoked weed, never drank, never dropped acid. A lot like Frank Zappa in that uh, aspect. In short, they didn't fulfill the Bacchanalian idea of the hedonistic idea of the rock and roll lifestyle. Uh, caveat, some band members would later describe Russell's um, facility with the ladies, uh, but that does seem to be the extent of their uh, indulgences. They were focused, very, very, very focused on the band and uh, recording and rehearsing. Twelve songs were ultimately chosen by the Male Brothers and Earl Menke to record for their would-be first album. Uh, what would take some time to shake out was who would play what on the record and also who would get to contribute songs. Now, according to uh, Rude Swartz's blog, uh, it's called Rude's Blog, which is maintained by a friend of the podcast, Rude Swartz, uh, Ron plays piano and organ, plus I personally think I hear an early Moog on one of those tracks. Uh, Russell plays bass, where a bass may be. Audible, which is not all over the record, and sings lead on all but one song. Uh, That song is Big Rock Candy Mountain, which is virtually the only Sparks or Half Nelson song that would not only not have Russell's vocals in the lead, but also isn't written by a male brother at all. Uh, That song was almost entirely Earl Menke's brainchild. Um, Besides Ron and Russell and Earl, there's a smattering of short-lived Players audible on the album. Uh, John Mendelssohn plays most of the drums. Uh, That is where the other three aren't simply improvising a drummish sound by banging on makeshift percussive items like cardboard boxes and cookware, pots and pans, and stuff like that. Uh, A guy named Surly Ralph Oswald contributes uh, bass guitar where, uh, Russell has put it down, uh, and Mike Burns, Mike Burns, who bankrolled the recording of the demo and would soon become the band's manager, added some drum tracks, and in fact, uh, Mike Burns really, really wanted to be Half Nelson's full-time drummer, and of course that did not, uh, come to fruition, On the album, Uh, Ron contributes the lion's share of the album's lyrics, although Russell also puts his stamp on at least three tracks, contributes at least three tracks of of his own lyrics, um, which would rarely happen on a Sparks album once they uh, eventually found success. Um, At at, at a point after their first couple of albums, Ron would write essentially 100% of the songs on all of their albums. Um, now lyrically, the songs on the on the Half Nelson nineteen sixty nine uh, record show some of the same tendency towards obscure subject matter, um, like arts and crafts fairs and uh, a, a, a deli where animals frequent, um, weird stuff like that, which would later become a Sparks hallmark: that strange subject matter. Although it runs later. Really focused and witty wordplay and that, uh, yeah, that skewed, pointed humor are not really obvious, uh, on this album. They're still in an embryonic sort of stage here. Still, you can, you can tell there's a germ of something, um, really interesting and different. Now, uh, we'll be listening to the Half Nelson 69 album. A little bit later in the episode. And for ease of reference, I'm just going to refer to the album henceforth as Half Nelson 69. Um, Just a side note here, and many sources claimed for years that the title of the album was A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing, which you probably know if you're a Sparks fan was also the title of their 1972 album with uh, Bearsville. Uh, now, my sources say that this is not true. It was never called a woofer in tweeter's clothing. Uh, the so called demo album uh, also was recorded via reel to reel and pressed onto a hundred acetate discs, which of course could be played on a standard record player. They looked like a record, it was just made from a different material. Um, now, for years, cheaper material. For years, uh, Sparks lore had that the, the album sleeve. Uh, depicted a surfboarder riding past the Eiffel Tower, some, you know, crazy psychedelic imagery like that. And that's just not the case. Uh, Ron designed the packaging for the album, which was a box printed to resemble a waiter's notepad for taking orders. Uh, inside the box was the record and a handful of photos of the band. Uh, the photos were developed and printed by Larry DuPont, the Mail Brothers friend from college, who also happened to be working on a student film for which Half Nelson was contributing a score. Not completed, by the way. Neither the film nor the score were completed, sadly. Now, uh, Half Nelson didn't play many live shows in a traditional sense, with a big audience and normal venues. Instead, they would ask to play specifically for and in front of record executives, exactly none of who would agree to sign them on throughout the rest of 1969 and most of 1970 anyway. Um, now, by this time, Ron and Russell, ever mindful of the impact of an image on an audience, and they are very image conscience, um, remember Ron is a graphic designer and so is his dad, they developed a sort of embryonic version of what would later be their visual trademark, as we know Sparks today. Um, Ron, who for a time uh, reportedly was sporting a 10-gallon hat um, over a, an, an an afro, can only be described as such. He had big uh, afro-like curly hair that he grew out long um he did of course you know cut it a few years after that once they finally uh made it big in england and of course uh most notably he grew a succinct toothbrush mustache in a deliberate homage to his silent film heroes of the vaudeville era and not adolf hitler thank you very much um long frustrated by ron's inability to get uh Pete Townsend Wild on his keyboard because the instrument doesn't really allow for that. And he loved Pete Townsend. He idolized Pete Townsend. So, and since he wasn't able to take that uh, performance approach, he instead opted for a completely controlled, even disinterested looking performance when playing live. He went the opposite direction and went, instead of totally crazy, totally sane Uh, Meanwhile, Russell, who is the front man of the band, he ditched the bass halfway through the recording so that um, he could free himself up, especially when performing, free himself up as Ron's polar opposite, flailing and strutting about the stage as the band's focal point, just like uh, Mick Jagger or Roger Daltrey. But there's something a little self-aware about it. It's like there was a whiff of parody that sort of gave away the calculated nature of the the whole uh, half-Nelson presentation. Uh, And uh, Russell also was paying homage to an influence of his own. Um, uh, Apparently it was uh, Tadzio from the movie Death in Venice. At least that's what one of uh, my uh, books, my sources, tells me. Um, Although Ron's cascading locks, curls made him look a lot more like uh, Louis XIV, if you ask me. Um, now, Russell's voice, uh, hasn't quite matured the way it will in just a, a few years, but it was already, already sounded unlike anything that you heard in pop music vocals at that time. And honestly, has had very few imitators since, except, uh, famously, Freddie Mercury. Uh, for one thing, his words were weirdly accented, like he was, born somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, not quite British, not quite American. But most remarkably, he would sing in a, a reedy tenor uh, one moment and then, like in the song Roger, uh, which you'll hear in a bit, and then the next minute he'll completely switch gears and, and he'll shatter glass with a faux operatic wheel, uh, sometimes almost as high as a castrato, uh, and it's that elasticity of Russell's voice that is going to play no small part in keeping Sparks uh, relevant uh, through the decades to come and, uh, and changing with the, um, with the, the styles of uh, pop music at that time. Although it would seem like a grueling wait, uh, Half Nelson, they stayed disciplined, they rehearsed constantly, they played often, uh, ultimately they would catch the admiring eye and ear of Todd Rundgren then of the Philadelphia band Naz. And after that happened, nothing would be the same. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We're going to switch gears now and take a deep dive into Half Nelson 69, where I will be joined by Richard Martinez. Hey, hey, hey! How you doing? Uh, this is All You Ever Think About is Sparks, the brand new All Sparks All the Time podcast. We are going to be going through the legendary bands, Au Vue, uh throughout their uh, 50-year history in chronological order. I am your host number one, Christian Huey.
3: And I'm Richard Martinez, co-host number two. Excellent! Boy,
0: this is a lot of fun, isn't it? Hey, so uh, before we recorded this, we had a really great interview with uh, a guy named uh, Rude Swart. And uh, you listeners will be hearing that a little bit later in this episode. Who told us some really, really, really cool stuff, cool trivia about uh, Sparks' very first episode unreleased album under the name half nelson we'll get to that what, what what was your first exposure to this to this band this weird band sparks
3: so i would say it's probably back in 1984 85 when my parents actually allowed me to watch the movie uh valley girl. valley girl yeah yeah uh they had a song in there. If you'll uh, remember, it's a pretty uh, pretty great scene where uh, one of the characters is on his way to go and supposedly have sex with uh, uh, the daughter. And uh, as he's on his bicycle riding down the road, the song uh, Monster of Love... Eaten by the monster of Eleven. Perfectly, so, yeah.
0: I I saw that for the first time on YouTube the other day, in preparation for the show, actually. Um, and that song in particular, this is I'm we I'm just coming busting out of the gate here with some personal shit, heavy personal shit. Uh, when I discovered uh, the band, uh, it was 2008. So way after you know when you just discovered it, and I was. Uh, A fully grown adult going through a divorce and uh, I was uh, depressed and uh, drinking 25 hours a day and uh, I remember in particular I was driving my Jeep to Dallas to visit my parents you know I was um, mommy you'll save me You know and I was I was sobbing and just being generally miserable and pathetic and uh, I had a CD of two sparks albums on it and one was uh, number one in heaven the other one was uh, angst angst in my pants and I, I remember I put it on and eaten by the monster of love came up and it lightened my load oh, instantly a song. Yeah, that is a so great song.
3: much I mean it as good music tends to do. Yeah, definitely. Incidentally, um, I was dating this girl back in the uh, mid 90s, and she ended up buying me the uh, just release CD version or, or a release of the uh, Valley Girl soundtrack, and on there was Angst in My Pants. And I'll remember one night I was hanging out with some friends. We all brought CDs over as we often did. And we sat drinking beer and, you know, partaking in other things that we probably weren't supposed to be doing. And um, Ah, youth. uh, So great. (laughs) So I remember that song coming on in the middle of it. And there was probably like five or six of us in there. We were all pretty, uh, pretty inebriated. And that song came on and out of nowhere, the five of us just got up and started dancing in this small, you know, three-bedroom apartment, and we started dancing. We cranked the music up. Uh, Luckily, nobody called the cops on us or anything like that, but I just remember hearing that song and thinking, this is something that could be played on the radio today. Right, and clearly,
0: he's talking about his dick. (laughs) I mean, that's really, when he gets, you know, I might as well be called, you know, my... Dick is uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, I could still hear that today, and and I could definitely, uh, especially when Franz Ferdinand in the early aughts, they were so big that electro rock sort of sound was coming out, and,
0: right? And Disco punk still, or electro yeah, rock. It yeah. was.
3: I mean, it's that that song to me is timeless. It is fantastic. The beat, the rhythm, the lyrics. The, uh, I'd never get tired of it.
0: I agree. And that is one of my favorite uh, albums, which uh, we will I- explore much later down the road. I, it's uh, some of the best new wave. So when I discovered Sparks the first time, and this is a very um, 21st century way of coming across a, a band, it was because I you know, was looking up groups that I already knew and reading album reviews on allmusic.com or something yeah. like that. And, you know, You may also like... Blah, 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 and I kept seeing sparks pop up. And so I, you know, just took the plunge and uh and uh You checked go down that rabbit sparks. hole. So I went down that rabbit yeah. hole. And I was the, the the way it seemed to me, my initial impression was that it was as if someone had made a mockumentary about a band during this forty some odd year period and all these different always uh, seemed to be of that particular time. And it wasn't until a little bit later that I realized that they actually helped to influence yeah, the styles Yeah, that definitely. Were I would say they were always point a,
3: ahead of the curve. I would say, you know, they were kind of there leading the, uh, leading the reins and, and being at the forefront of what sound was um, permeating the radio and college audiences and so forth. I think that was just really great about them.
0: Yeah, like like all great bands. I mean, they were really good at staying just ahead of the curve stylistically for uh, for a lot of their time. You know, it's like uh, it's like if aliens saw uh, uh, pop music and saw our, you know rock bands and saw our expression of, of pop music, and they're like, okay, we can do this. And then they export something like Sparks. That's kind of what I imagine because they're also w- weird in alien. And, and off-kilter...
3: I would agree with that. I would say that they... Um, they're really not looking for a commercial hit. Uh, they definitely want to uh, write about things that are very personal to them, but also it appeals so universally. That's the one thing that I've found. So
0: we've got uh, two brothers in the band, uh, Ron and Russell male M-A-E-L. And uh, Russell is the uh the hyperactive uh, frontman um when they started out he had this like louis the 14th kind of look with the long you know curly locks and and ron Mayall. so there's an apocryphal story about john lennon watching top of the pops in 1974 it comes on and sparks is is performing um uh, uh this town ain't big enough so Ron Mayle, he's the brother who wrote... He writes pretty much all of the songs. And then Russell is, is the singer. Right. He's, he, he's the vocalist. And uh, his, his go-to is, is usually is this operatic falsetto that you hear pretty often. Not always, but pretty often. And uh, I did find out that Freddie Mercury... Uh, happened to see Sparks in around about 1972
3: and 1973 and okay. was inspired by them. To carry that. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's yeah.
0: interesting. Now, um, one thing that you'll find out about uh, Ron and Russell is that they like to fuck with the with the media? They like to fuck with the press, and it was something they did from the the, the earliest days of their career. So they would make up some stories about their own origins. Uh, one was that they were uh, sons of Doris Day. Not true. Um, that's I'm sure the biggest one. They said they were child actors, or they were you know models in you know Sears magazine. That didn't happen. Um, we do know that they were born in or around Pacific Palisades, California, which is very close to Bel Air, I think. It's a really ritzy part of L.A. And it wasn't until uh, Ron's parents took him to see a movie in 1955 that he was inspired to begin his musical career, or at least he was inspired to explore music. The Blackboard Jungle. Oh
3: yeah. Right. I think that inspired a whole generation right there. I mean... Bill Haley and his Comets.
0: One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock.
3: Nine, ten, eleven there o'clock, twelve o'clock, That's,
1: rock. We're gonna rock. I mean,
0: Around,
3: it's like Elvis and a own It's the entire song, generation. We'll and basically and inspired an entire genre of, of rock and roll.
0: I mean, it really was... I mean, it wasn't the first rock and roll song, but no, it definitely but it was,
3: first, was. It was the first one to hit number one, if I remember correctly. That's the first one to hit number was one. It? And uh, it, it's. It's the shot heard around the world. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, They went to Palisades High, which was, frankly, a rich kid's school. And believe it or not, uh, Ron and Russell were jocks. Ron played on the baseball team. That is very surprising. Russell played on the football football team. I know. Very strange. Uh, Mom took him to see the Beatles in 1964 in Las Vegas. And that was what uh, started their infatuation with the music of the British invasion and their Anglophilia. Um Russell in particular loved the Yardbirds. The, he talks about this very often in interviews. The first single he Human was happening ten years time ago. And Ron really loved the Who, and he idolized Pete Townsend like so many other teenage boys did at that time. They finally started a band in 1966 that was called I Shouldn't You Not the Bel Air Blues Project. That's classic. Yeah uh that didn't uh take off uh soon after they were enrolled in ucla uh ron was working toward a graphic arts degree and russell went into theater and filmmaking and around that time they met this guy uh, larry dupont who ended up becoming their first manager and their photographer their very very first musical act what they called the urban renewal project and there are And you'll hear this a little bit later uh, in our interview with Root. There were uh, four tracks that they had recorded as part of Urban Renewal Project. But you can only find one. And I'm going to play that right now. This is the very first known or available recording of Sparks at this point called Urban Renewal Project called Computer Girl. Thank <phone> you. <rings>
3: She's a computer
0: yeah. girl. She's a computer girl. She's got no arms. She's got yeah. no legs. Suck no that radio head. Exactly. Damn. They're up on it. Uh, that was 1967. Uh, they, The other people in the band were, uh, they were a married couple by the name of Franks. I think I, I want to say it was Fred Franks and Ronna Franks uh, who was playing drums. And that's also the voice that you hear who says, this is a recording all throughout the thing. That didn't hit big that particular song, and Urban Renewal Project didn't last very long after that. So they got rid of that, and they posted an ad for a guitarist, and this guy named Earl Menke responded to it. He was a fellow UCLA student, he had a degree in sound engineering. Uh, They changed the name of their band to Half Nelson after the wrestling hold reason, not sure. Uh, Menke, he didn't quite share the same uh, anglophilia as uh, the male brothers did. But uh, he, but he loved Captain Beefheart, and that kind of wacky, uh, freak out stuff, and yeah. uh, you know, and like the Mothers and Frank Zappa and that kind of thing. So you're going to hear that influence in the the very first unreleased uh, album that we're going to be playing in a little bit. But anyway, so the Mail Brothers they got together with manky and um, they just recorded and, recorded, and recorded, and recorded, and recorded, and their idea was they were going to have a product and they're going to mail it out to different rec- record companies and record executives and just try to get signed that way because they had seen so many other acts at that time try to make it on the live circuit and just fall flat on their asses. And they you know decided that the way they were going to make it was by going straight to the record companies and getting signed. And the product of all that was the unreleased Half Nelson uh, album. Now, I have read uh, in a couple of different places that the title was uh, a Woofer in a Tweeter's in Tweeter's Clothing, right. which was actually the name, ended up being the name of their second actually released album. At any rate, so they had Ron playing keyboard and piano as he would do throughout their entire career. Uh, Russell is playing the bass and most of the album you're not even gonna hear a real drummer uh, in fact on a few of these tracks they were literally banging on cardboard boxes and tin cans and shit but you can already hear the seeds of you know kind of the weird pop smarts that yeah, they just were where they get were going very soon next. yeah um, and uh, I should also mention so at that time they were also really really into uh, early Pink Floyd Saucer full of Secrets, Sid Barrett. You know, really weird psychedelic shit, and you're definitely going to hear that here. So, uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, start us out. The uh, The first song on that album is called Chili Farm Farney. Um, <laughs> but before I. Yeah, exactly. But before I. Uh, Alliteration is always fun. Um, but before I do play it, I just want to read the lyrics. Because if if you're a fan of Sparks, you're a fan of uh, Ron Mail's lyrics, and they're usually literate and funny and yeah, all that shit. Yeah, so
3: tongue-in-cheek. Man.
0: Tongue-in-cheek? This Love is it. just weird. It doesn't, it's like, I I don't fucking get it. So, uh, Chili Farm Farney is the town where all the people go, Chili Farm Farney stopped the nation on the run with a spoon. You will see the dancing tunes, you will see your scholar mates, you will see the dollar rates. If they're not at nude, if they're not yet nude, if your dreams are proved to be wrong, to be wrong, Chili Farm Farney is it. Really where we think it is. Chili Farm Farney, what's your secret? Can you let us
3: in? Is that, that is hitting actually, you at all? That's what happens when you make chili using weed. I mean, you throw it in ah. there. This is what happens. I mean, naturally. That's, dancing <laughs> that's tunes, stellar mates. Okay. I love
1: it. <laughs>
0: really weird stuff. Um, yeah. If anyone out there has any clue what it all means, what it means, let me know. Uh, and here it comes. This is the uh, first song on the album Chili
3: Farm Party. Okay. What do you think, Richard? I think uh, Hormel or Wolf Brand needs to contact the Brothers Mail. Yeah. and have that be the song for their next. I know. Casual. That's all I'm saying. You I, can I, sell so much Wolf Brand chili with absolutely. that. Absolutely, I think uh, sales would skyrocket. Uh, so I'm seeing
0: go-go dancers, go-go girls, and so when I hear when I hear this, it's very late '60s. It's very yeah, odd. yeah.
3: That uh, the the hand claps and the double mm-hmm. taps on the 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 drums. That, to me, sounds like some early Ringo.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, definitely some kinks in there, too, as well.
0: Definitely some kinks. Yeah, for sure. And you're going to hear a lot more of that kind of thing. Uh, so the uh, next song that we have here is called Johnny's Adventure. And um, this is, sounds like a, a, sea sh- a sea shanty. Chanty or shanty? <laughs> shanty. Is it a, sh- a shanty? A, a shanty chanty? A she shed. A she shed. She said she says <laughs> shanties. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read some of those lyrics because it just confounds me. Would you like
3: to read these lyrics? Sure. <clears throat> I only hope I can do these justice. Financial evidence claims that he was broke two days ago, so he sold his big heart for two fifty, and sold, and sold. Excuse me, and sold for forty more, with his earnings in his bag straddled over his arm. He made his way on into the town to see what he could find. Work is wanted, must be strong. Heart and soul need not belong. Johnny went there to see just what this job could be. Keep going. All right. Before the day was through... He was all settled at his job. He was scrubbing the floor and cooking the food for creatures he could not believe. Stranger girls with frilly curls and sweat all down their limbs. They were all filled with venomous hate. They scarcely looked like love at all. What is this? He asked himself. Where does he turn? He quizzed himself. He submitted notice intend to quit your job. Okay. So I'm
0: gonna I'm just gonna cut you off right there.
3: So it sounds like it's um
0: a um a young guy on some weird uh Tolkieny
3: kind of journey.
1: Really? No, I, I don't know what, what I got what are, you, what are you getting?
3: I thought it was like some uh some guy who's like mid management really trying to eke up and uh trying to be able to get to the top of the rung but not quite sure oh the corporate letter yeah the corporate letter that's what i got no you're right and he's like you know he's wrong. about two three days away from walking into the office he sold his big heart
0: for 250 and sold see? for 40 more you know. he's having to
3: compromise oh. himself yes and so now he he can't look at himself in the mirror he's disgusted with who he sees and he's about to go postal
0: I right, i just skipped ahead at the end to see if he did go postal um, all right, so here it is. And again, to me, it sounds like a a sea sh- chanty, <laughs> chanty, Chantics. So that was
2: love Financial evidence claims he was broke two days ago, so he sold his big heart for two fifty, his soul for forty more. He could find workers wanted must be strong, heart and soul need not be long. Johnny went there to see just what this job could be. Before the day was through, he was all settled at his job. He was scrubbing the floor and cooking the food for creatures he could not believe. Stranger girls with frilly curls and sweat all down their limbs. They're all filled with venom of hate. It scarcely looked like love at all. What is this? He asked himself.
0: and that was Johnny's Adventure.
3: Yeah, that's like a psychedelic pub
0: sing-along. Yeah, you're right. It does. Yeah, it de- definitely does. Like Someone had slipped some uh, LSD in your garage. It's <laughs> a great one. That's fantastic. Um, so there are two tracks on this uh, album that actually were later uh, re-recorded and produced by Todd Rundgren. And released on their first album, and um, the first of those is uh, Roger. And this is one of the few songs that was actually written by. Uh, so this by is an early
3: version, right? I'm so great.
0: yeah, uh, they later redid it uh, for their first actual album. Um, this is this i called Roger, and here it is. It goes like this: I'm picking up where I once left off in the search for a justified balance between the wealth that I have now and the wealth that they all want to have. Let's, let's ask Roger if he knows what I mean. Roger, Roger, let's take your Sue. How does she do it, Roger? How does she do it, Roger? Roger, Roger, has Sue got the balance right for you, Roger? I ask you, Roger, has she got the balance right for you? Has she got it? Has she got it? Roger, Roger, Roger,
3: Roger. Okay I know Yeah I'm at a loss I know Me too But that's art man Yeah 60's man It's fucking great
2: Between the wealth that I have now And the wealth that they all want to have Roger, Roger, if he knows what I mean Roger, Roger, let's take your suit
3: That's right. Roger. E. That is right.
0: great.
3: I actually like that a lot.
0: So that's the uh, that's what I like to to call the being at a Belgian carnival on shrooms. <laughs> that's
1: fantastic. Kind
0: of it. Um, it
3: reminded me of like a uh, soccer hooligan sing along again. I mean, they're very influenced uh, by British. Uh, music yeah. of the time, you know, a lot of those Pink Floyd and
0: there's definitely uh, that's where you really hear Creed. that early uh, Pink Floyd, the Sid Barrett style. Yeah, uh, it's just the, the wacky sound effects, um, let's call and see. response, the call and response kind of thing. Uh, and this is on um, Rude's uh, blog actually. So uh, Earl, he was the guitar player, and he was uh, messing around with his tape recorder to speed up the sound of his guitar to create all those wacky sounds. So they were already using their um, uh, studio as an instrument, you know, much like the, the Beatles were at that time. Uh, the next song is called Arts and Crafts Spectacular. Um, when we were talking with uh, Rude, former president of the Dutch Sparks fan club, he mentioned that uh, arts and crafts spectacular was actually covered by Morrissey on uh, on a covers album that he made uh, some years ago
3: under the influence,
0: under the influence.
3: Also the album was called under the influence. Arts and crafts spectacular. Uh, let's see if we can find the appeal in these lyrics to see what compelled Morrissey to record. There you this. go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, capacity 400 i see seating for three quarts of me are we all seated properly now we can begin us to spend lovely claudine jones has come to push her quilt next to her we have her sister slur who has come with the parts they have passed mrs wong presents a painted bong (laughs) from trees of the lands where she has been lovely claudine jones has come to push her quilt yes she has second prize goes to tracy wise for her seashells painted all through grand prize comes as no surprise to mrs landscape with rice lovely claudine jones she tries to push her quilt and then you repeat over and over.
0: <laughs> so That's is great. this um, some kind of flea market type of thing or, a, or That's like a I'm neighborhood
3: getting. auction? Or? I think it is a cutthroat flea market yeah. where uh, these women are very protective over their sales and their spots in the flea market. The most prime location in there. And I think uh, Claudine Jones will cut you if you try you. to take her. Yeah, try to take her I with a quilter. See, yeah, I can see why Morrissey would want to cover this. I mean, that's that's great. Um, His history. famous love for quilting. Yeah, yeah. he was actually uh,
0: a knitter uh, back in the eighties. Let, let's be honest. Like, well, I think we can all picture Morrissey knitting on the tour bus. Absolutely.
3: Just like hate fucking. just Yeah. Hate just knitting. the the knitting. He's like knit one, two,
1: pearl two. two, oh, two. Knit one. Fuck yeah.
0: Here it is, Arts and Crab Spectacular.
1: Capacity, all the see, of me. Oh, we all see We can begin to stay
2: Lovely Claudine Jones has come to push her. Jones has come to push her quilt. There she
1: is.
3: There's some fun
0: uh, Orton stuff. That, that reminds that me Ron's of some like there.
3: Velvet Underground Nico type. That, I I know. could
0: definitely hear some of the Velvet Underground in there as well. And this is like you're starting to see where their, especially Ron's you know trademark humor in his lyrics is showing up. Although it's definitely not direct in this. But I mean you know there's some kind of funny incongruity to hearing this. Um, you know, in, in, in intense-sounding music, and it's about Claudine Jones trying to sell her quilt. I like it. It's good. And, hey, you know, who, who are you to, uh, to doubt Morrissey's?
3: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, I'll never do it. Um, next up, we have... Oh, no, these aren't numbered. That means I've got to actually check order. my original source. One. After Arts and Crafts Spectacular. Oh, uh, by the way, um, so I I am using uh, Root's um, blog as a source for this. And he says that this is the first song of the album that actually contains uh, drums. um, But then he also, uh, he kind of reiterates what I had said before, that the males, uh, Ron and Russell, said that they were using cardboard boxes uh, for drum kits. And
3: kind of sounds like it,
0: according to Root here. Uh, The next song is Landlady which, according... These are Rude's words. Land, landlady starts off with a vocal cacophony in which probably even Ron Male joined in. The whole song is very atmospheric and mystical, it somehow reminds me of something that could have been played at the house of the Adams family. Sinister and fascinating at the same time with beautiful guitar riffs from Earl and a heavy bass line. And there's always Ron's organ. Very, very noticeable, beautiful song. Um, you know, one thing that I have noticed about this that you're going to see through all of Sparks Career is there is this um, there's melodrama in in a lot of a lot of their songs there's a lot of sturm yeah. and drain, you know yeah. I mean there's the really quiet parts and there's the loud intense parts and all that sort of stuff um, and you definitely hear it in the last song and you're going to hear it here in, in Landlady um, although I don't Expect that you'll be like singing at the shower anytime soon. Mm-hmm.
1: Some
2: of the have said that they seen you last May. But how can that be when you never have left three away Victorian overstuffed couch. In the wall to keep print at the bill I receive on the test.
1: I like, I, I like that. I like that a
0: lot. No, um, no, no, no. I that, love it. No, no, I love it too. I just so that um, I'm pretty sure that was an early Moog that you heard Sound at like, the end yeah. there. Yeah, I yeah. think Ron had pr- got his hands on an, on an early Moog. It was uh, like
3: two songs basted together perfectly. know, yeah. right. That's another,
0: another thing that I noticed about about this album. You, you don't hear it. It's it's not. Uh, it's not the music is not very direct. You know, you don't have a whole lot of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and you keep basically the same, you know, 4-4 four, four time signature. I mean, right. they're kind of all over the place here. Uh, and and Rude had also um, made mention in the blog here that, all, you know, Earl Mankey, he's the guy playing the guitar. You never hear him play uh, the rhythm guitar the way you, you often hear it played in music. Right. It's just right. keeping the beat. No, instead it, like, comes out in little fragments and yeah. stuff like that. He fills. Really he
3: does quite a bit of fills.
0: Fills. Feels feels here. It's in He's his feels. feels. Um, yeah, it first, kind of made me feel like I was playing Luigi's Mansion.
1: That's, not <laughs>
0: funny. that's a great. That's a great <laughs> analogy. I think that matches perfectly. Yeah, yeah, you feel me. Uh, minor minor key stuff, really spooky, cool stuff. Um, the next song is called "The Animals at Jason's Bar and Grill," and this was a this this track here in particular rude. Um, uh, to him, sounded a lot like the Kinks. I walk in the street. Looks like it's time to eat. I hit for Jason's Grill. When I get there, I order burgers. A pair. A side of stacks and a lot, please. Please, sir, don't sit there. That seat is saved for a girl with short hair. Thank you. Quite suddenly, the patron ceased to eat. Eighty eyes all fixed on the door. When what do their wandering eyes should appear but a moose? A dog? A mouse? An ant? Deer? Dear me, will they come in? No, it's coming in. Jason's girl has never witnessed discrimination based on race or on creed. This must be a test case coming. Confrontation coming. People will plead. Frizzy, gulp your chowder path. You like that one? Yeah, I love that.
3: um, I'm wondering if that's like a double entendre. Yeah, I can imagine
0: that. (laughs) Chowder path. Gross. Gross. Uh, there's there's of a William S. Burroughs thing to that. Uh, finish up your hash. Jason, bring my check right now. No, I don't want coffee, thanks. The animal spokesman, he started to speak. The rummage was all hushed. You could hear a meatball fall. As the moose stalked slowly to Jason, moose reached into his mane. Buddy, can you give me a quarter's change? So uh, I, when I read these lyrics for the first time, I thought of um, this being an, an analogy for racism in the sixties
3: and sort of tying into the civil rights movement. That's pretty bold. It is bold and I'm gonna stand by it. I thought it was a commercial for an Applebee's at first. And then when the animals started to move in, um I think maybe they were upset that their friends were getting killed and turned into birds. Oh, yeah. No I could see something like that.
0: Yeah. 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 He should go vegan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm seeing it and I'm standing by it because it, I, I'm, I think what really did it for me was the line, Jason's girl has never witnessed discrimination based on race or on creed. Yeah, Maybe I wanted to read more into it than there really is there. Animal lives matter. I would like to. Yeah. Animal lives matter. Yeah. I, I, you know, they, we there should be a civil rights movement. For sure, animals for animals,
3: an right? You know what I mean. You know, Jack I mean, Hanna can take the lead. Jack Hanna uh, could. Steve yeah. Irwin could be the patron saint. Yeah, exactly. And his, I think, his daughter is. Um, she's quite an animal activist. Yeah, nowadays.
0: she's yeah. she's really like filling his uh, shoes there. That's right. And now, of course, you've got the Impossible Burgers. And oh the, yeah, and those are. Have you tried them? I haven't. They're and really I'm, good. I, I like would them. absolutely love to. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like I. I, I, I I really wrestle with my conscience here, and that I'm. If I weren't so lazy, I might be a vegetarian.
3: I've tried to convince my family to go vegetarian, and they both agree that they could do it. Yeah. But I think somewhere deep down inside, I, I think they're just lying to me. I, they're just blatantly uh, lying. Yeah. <laughs> they, they'll kill I mean, me for uh, a shame. for a steak after a week and, and so a half. I,
0: and oh. I don't want to go too off too far off the reservation here, but I. I Firmly believe that if you are going to eat an animal, that you should at the very least have to watch that animal being murdered for your benefit. Yeah. If not, do it yourself. <laughs> you know, because you we're just we're and that's the problem we're so, we're so far removed, we are removed. from the act of slaughter, right? And I I really do believe that you know say. I don't know, hundred years or something for him. Maybe, maybe it'll be even sooner than
3: that. Have you watched the Richard Linklater directed film, uh, fast food nation and the last 10 minutes
2: of I that movie?
3: Okay. So it's actually, it, it's an actual, it's actual footage from a slaughterhouse, oh. uh, killing the animals and everything. I mean, it's meant to obviously disturb you yeah. and at least, you can't walk out of the theater saying, well, I didn't know. So, I mean, it's right. quite graphic. It's quite graphic. Oh, shit. And that was Fast Food Nation? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, directed by Richard Linklater.
0: I didn't know Richard Linklater did Fast Food Nation. Yeah.
3: Oh, no yeah. shit. I could be wrong, but yeah. probably not.
0: Uh, here come the animals at Jason's Bar and Grill.
2: It's time to eat I hit for Jason's Grill When I get there I order burgers a pear, A side of stacks and slobkneys Please sir, don't sit there That's easy safe for a girl with short hair Thank you Woo. Quite suddenly the patron sees to eat 80 eyes all fixed on the door to I should appeal, But a moose,
3: a dog, Strawberry alarm clock. Maybe? Yeah, a strawberry alarm clock. But I but more importantly, I picture a nineteen nineties commercial mm-hmm. of like a group of five people in a row, arms around each other, kinda like uh like friends. Opening theme, or like they're
1: they're going to
3: TGI Fridays, you know, and we're all gonna go have a burger. I don't know, but keep the fucking animals. I would really love to hear Sparks come back and do one night of just this album. I mean, obviously, there would be
1: reinterpretations,
3: possibly. I mean, you know, I would too. So
0: in 2008, I think it was, um, they performed. They had a residency for 21, uh, 21 days, 21 evenings in uh, Shepherds Isle. Anyway, some I'm sorry, somewhere in the UK, they had played uh, 21 nights, and they and they played each one of their albums in chronological order. I don't know how the hell that like any human being can yeah. you know store that much information in your head. His voice
3: had to have been shot by, like, night 10. I I don't understand, especially with his range.
0: Yeah. Anyway, they didn't do this, which is a shame. So I think they they owe us that. Um, So the next song that we have here was one that was actually, I believe, written by the guitarist Earl Minky, which is odd. And I do believe you hear him... Singing through a majority of it, Big Rock Candy
3: Mountain. Yeah, not to be confused with the old uh, folk song, Big Rock Candy Mountain. Yeah, by uh, John Denver. Did- I think he <laughs> covered a no, of it. No, it's got to be Woody Guthrie. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, Pretty similar. Be, yeah. Yeah, it was on the, uh, the uh, Old oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. I remember hearing. That.
0: Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, really? Right. Okay. Yeah.
3: Oh, it's so, I, really. It's a oh. little folk song. Okay, there it is. Right
0: there, there it is. This is the Big Black Rock candy. candy Mountain. It is from Oh Brother Where are Thou?
3: Yeah, yeah. Bertie Burl- Burl- yeah. Oh, Harry McClintock. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, Lives. I guess did a version back in '45. Yeah. One evening as the
2: sun went down and the jungle fire was burning. Down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away, beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. That's great. In the. All yeah. right. Yeah,
3: that's your. Is that, Is that heaven? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think this song is at all, uh, I think the only thing it shares is the title, and that's about it. There you <laughs> go.
0: But... Very interesting. So in this particular big Rock Candy Mountain,
3: uh, you want to read some of these? Sure, Big Rock candy Mountain at twelve o'clock a carriage rolled into the town. The Mrs. Lively dropped her baggage to the ground. She didn't know her way around. She passed that window from the drearer, from the deer and a man. He made his fortune as a travel engineer, and now he needed Susie near. She was joyous, lovely, prosperous, and glad when she glowed with all the love that she hadn't had. One with his feet, she knew it, sweep her off her feet. She flew into his open arms. She waited long for this afternoon. But Susie stopped and her face fell. He could tell. For her face can only dear her broken and her fairy tales as well. With teardrops in her eyes, she turned away to go. For wife until fell her down feel. And her lifelines unknown
0: <laughs> I'm getting the the overall uh, sense impression from the lyrics on this album that it like it it, it sounds like prose like from uh, a Victorian yeah, novel yeah, or like something you know? yeah
2: I drove the clock, a carriage rolled into the town. The missus like he dropped her baggage through the crowd She didn't know her way
1: around She passed away With
2: all her dear her own He made his fortune As a chocolate engineer Now he gets in here She was joy just-
0: stop and her face fell he he well. uh wrestle you can shatter glass Ooh, that's that
3: really falsetto. nice that time change in the middle and then ah. the really flexing his vocal muscle right there in the middle of it I love that I have to deal with it uh, the next song is called Millie oh Millie. oh,
1: Millie. oh Millie.
3: where are you girl?
0: curious to see what rude has to say about that one catchy up-tempo tune but tends to get slightly boring after having heard it a number of times all i need to hear
3: That's great. I, don't know. I like it. I like the uh, the overdubs, the distortion added to the overdubs I, too. Yeah, I kind of really like cool. the double track vocals there. Yeah.
0: Uh, next, we've got a song, which uh, the only other song that ended up being saved by Todd uh, Run. How do you say that guy's fucking name? Uh, Todd. Todd. T O D. Good. You got it. <laughs> um, I was. I kept saying Toad. Uh, Run- Rungrin.
3: Yes.
1: That's Rungrin. Right.
0: Yeah. Todd. All right like all these years I'm like I know how to spell it I just don't know how to say it Um, this song saccharine in the war which is another song that was uh, the only other song here that was actually actually written by um, Russell did mention in his blog that joined the firm to him sounded a lot like the doors let's give that a listen firm
3: yeah it seems like their lyrics are really kind of geared toward the everyman i mean he's writing about obviously you write what you know and, and so, the corporate world are yeah you're seeing more yeah i've seen a little bit more of that i mean yeah. i think it's very relatable to the middle class or yeah. the, the lower upper middle class
0: yeah i think in, in their case uh hello won't you join our big show may we show you around i don't know do you hear the doors in that
3: not really really. i don't think there's very much
0: stories in that all right uh we this is jane church those organ swirls yeah, are that,
3: that that definitely reminds me of the incredible. doors that's incredible maybe it's that one there I would say you're right that out. does that does sound like the yeah. doors there yeah
0: well yeah Ron is killing it yeah. With, yeah. The, with the organ yeah, there that was really really good I like that they were
3: really I mean, you could see where they were heading as far as their their career is concerned, and the the type of music that they made. You can definitely hear that in this album. With yeah, future iterations of what they would become.
0: What's interesting, I mean this
3: this album definitely. I mean, there's
0: there are a lot of things that you don't hear much later and later recordings of theirs. Like it's it feels more. Um, mm, paranoid a lot of these songs I, I don't know if it's like there's a lot of minor key stuff there's like a lot of uh, it just feels darker yeah to I can agree you know? yeah. and uh, you don't really hear a whole lot of that you know um, later on uh, certainly not you know a song like all you ever think about is sex or uh, I predict or stuff like that um, so the last uh, the last track here is called The Factory and I'm just going to take that at face value and assume that it's referring to uh, Warhols. It could be. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, well, let's see what Rude, what Rude says. Despite its beautiful title, the song is hard to swallow, and it's probably Sparks' least accessible song ever recorded. Cool. The song seems to lack structure, and if you hear it for the first time, you might consider it as just a bunch of noise. All right all right that is a ringing endorsement yeah great final song on the album the factory Factory.
3: here we go some cool, like, percussive noises and shit. I dig that. I dig that. I like that a lot. There's, um, I have this theory that uh, if you want to see where a band is going to go next, Mm -hmm. you can look at the last last... tracks of their previous album, and they kind of toy around with, you know, what they want to do next, and you kind of see it coming to Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean,
0: like, uh, Do you like talking heads at all? Sure, absolutely. So, do you know the song E. Zimbra? Yes, oh yeah.
1: Absolutely. Which
0: is, um, well, I guess not at the end. It's actually the beginning of Fear of Music. But it definitely gets you ready for the next album. Absolutely, where they Uh, change. remain in light.
3: That's a fantastic album.
0: That'll be the next podcast series. Uh, So, that is the album that uh, that they did record. And... um, uh, onto acetate, and around a 100 or so copies of it were actually made, and they were sent out to record companies uh, mostly throughout L.A. I'm not really sure, you know, how far of a radius they had there. But that was their first big go at um, at making a dent in the pop music scene. Um, it sounds very much uh, of its time, I think, but it's also, like, very sparked, or what sparks would be uh i i was reading one of the books that i have there and uh ron had said something like um we weren't setting out to be weird we didn't know we were weird
3: that's great yeah oh exactly
0: which is that's the best way to be weird sure absolutely you know? um it's it's a lot of fun i really appreciate this and like you said like i i it would be it'd be badass if they would do this uh, live
3: somewhere so, did Rude say that uh, these acetates were in a vault somewhere, or who had them? Or He was referring to
0: some other recordings. Oh, okay. He was talking about the guy who was their first manager and photographer, who also owned the tape machine that they recorded everything on, Larry DuPont. Mm-hmm. He's still around. He still lives in L.A., and he apparently has uh, some recordings on acetate of a few songs that later went onto to the first actual album. Um, <clears throat> and so far, Rude has been uh, unable to rest them. Yeah, he was
3: pretty protective of that, it yeah. sounded like.
0: Um, uh, Rude did also share with me a... there's an outtake, a little 35-second outtake. We'll play it for the sake of completion. This is called Spider Run. Thank mm-hmm. like a hearing
3: test yeah basically that uh that feedback all throughout throughout the song there
0: Uh, so there it is that's that's that was the unreleased 1969 half nelson album um that hasn't Still hasn't been released and didn't see the light of day until, I guess, somewhat fairly recently. If you listen to our interview with Rude, who didn't get a hold of it until 1997, um, you know, as, as someone who's heard some amount of Sparks before, I mean, what, what's your impression
3: of that? Well, it's like you said, you know, they, they definitely sound from that particular era. I think it's really quite interesting to see, you know, following their career and where they went to. Uh you can hear some uh some hints at where they were gonna go, especially in the first half of their career. Yeah. And then right through the middle they took just like a left turn into Amazingville, you know. I yeah. loved it, you know. But I think I actually thought the album was pretty good. I, I liked yeah. it. I was surprised. Um
0: Yeah, it it's it it sounds it sounds complete. You know, it, it doesn't sound like demo recording. Yeah, thematic. You know? It's yeah, got a good theme it running does, through it. Yeah, I mean, aesthetically and, you know, lyrically, I suppose. Um, yeah, it was really cool. And um, I'm glad that uh, Rude uh, shared that with me.
3: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Um, so, the uh, next episode, um, we're going to take a look at the first um, released album, the first official album that was called Half Nelson at the time, later renamed it to Sparks. Uh, produced by Todd uh,
3: Rundgren. Uh
0: That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, it features uh, their first uh, somewhat hit, uh, Wonder Girl, which was a hit right. in Montgomery, Alabama. Alabama. Nice. There you go.
3: Yeah, because <laughs> if you want to hit, that's where you want it to hit, right there. Yeah,
0: November, you want to hit Alabama. right in Montgomery. Um, I, I do want to say uh, big thanks to Rude, of course, and uh, Monty Malin, uh, who helped um, point me in the direction of Rude. Uh, I want to thank uh, Jordan Cooper of the uh, podcast Don't let it Start That They Might Be Giants podcast for all the great tips. I want to thank the indiscreet Facebook group, the Sparks group on Facebook, the official site All AllMail.com com oh sorry allsparks.com and uh, two books that I've been uh, uh, leaning on heavily for material the uh, let's see number one songs in heaven by Dave Thompson talent is an asset by Daryl Islia you can reach me Christian Huey on Twitter if you so desire at 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 Christian Huey and uh, feel free to visit our Facebook page this uh, is all you ever think about
3: is sparks and richard uh, thank you so very much for allowing me to come on here it was a lot of fun i appreciate it and it was quite eye-opening here um, uh, it's really eye-opening to be you know go from a casual fan to an all-out big fan here and i i, I think this is going to be quite an interesting journey to see
0: there's no escape now yeah, yeah absolutely. you can't get out you've been sucked in all righty Thank you guys so much for listening and we will be back again
3: we'll see you sometime <laughs> sometime in the future
1: <laughs> um,